as Joel mentioned, I'm John Wells. I'm a lay elder here. Um, it's probably been like 18 months since I last preached, so uh, if you're here a few weeks ago, I gave a financial update, and I said it's the most calm I've ever been in front of the church, and this is probably the opposite. Super nervous right now. Um, if you were here the last time I preached, you probably remember that I'm the elder that cries, and I make no promises. It could be bad tonight. We'll see. Um, I'm prepared. I've got water and tissues. I did not have them last time, um, but all kidding aside, I'm really excited to share um, with you tonight from Acts 14. Um, before we jump into the text, just a quick recap of what Busby preached on last week. Um, it was the beginning of Paul and Barnabas's uh, first missionary trip, which carried them to Antioch and then on to Iconium and then finally to Lystra. Um, in Iconium, we saw Paul and Barnabas preach in the synagogue and perform lots of miracles, and a great number of um, people ended up believing. Um, but in the end, um, the Jews and the Gentiles both started to conspire against them and wanted to stone them. So we saw Paul and Barnabas flee to Lystra. And then in Lystra, Paul healed a crippled man, and when the crowd saw that, they believed that Paul and Barnabas um, must be gods, and they tried to worship them, declaring that they were Zeus and Hermes. Paul and Barnabas rebuked them and cried out to the Lord and for them to believe in Christ. But even in their rebukes, they couldn't uh, restrain the people. So this is where we're going to pick up tonight, in the unruly crowds of Lystra, but as we will see, their tenor has begun to change um, just a little bit. So um, as is our custom, uh, we'll pair a reading from the Old Testament um, with our sermon text tonight. So um, Laurel, if you'll come up and read our Old Testament reading. Our Old Testament reading tonight is from Psalm 59, 1 through 4. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for you no fault of mine, they run and make me ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. In our sermon text tonight, Acts 14, verses 19 to 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we meditate on your word tonight, we ask that your spirit be present. 
These words that I have prepared are nothing more than a feeble attempt to shed light on your very nature. Yet, you are able to transform them. Speak through them tonight, Lord. Lord, we humbly ask that you open our ears and our hearts to hear your voice. Reveal yourself to us, strengthen us, and renew us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in 1993, a film named Rudy was released. Rudy is a biographical film about Daniel Rudy Rudiger and his quest to fulfill a childhood dream of playing football at the University of Notre Dame. I hope y'all have seen Rudy. I know it's 20 years old, and I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but it is a top five sports movie of all time. And if you've seen the movie, what is the one thing that you remember about it? It's the very end. The crowd is chanting his name, Rudy, Rudy. And Rudy's in his, the Notre Dame classic blue and gold. He's hoisted up on the shoulders of his teammates. His arms are over his head, and they're all cheering in celebration. But maybe a more pertinent question for tonight is, what do you not remember about the movie? In all honesty, I haven't seen Rudy in probably 15 or 20 years. I only remember the end, the happy part. I had to Google what actually happened in the movie. After high school, Rudy worked in a steel mill with his dad and his brother and his best friend Pete, and Pete was killed in an explosion. Rudy applied to Notre Dame. He was denied. He learned that he was dyslexic. That's why his grades had been so poor. He enrolled in junior college. He was homeless. He lived in the Notre Dame groundskeeper's office for a period of time. He ended up being denied by Notre Dame three times before he was finally accepted. And then, once accepted, he walked onto the football team. The coach told him there was no chance he was ever going to dress. And he was on the practice squad. And it wasn't until the very last game of his senior year that they let him put on a uniform. And then is the ending scene where he gets on the field, he makes a big tackle. The crowd chants his name. He's hoisted up on the shoulders. The last 10% of the movie. I don't know about you, but I find this is a fairly common plot in movies. A team or a person is victorious at the very end, but the movie itself is full of challenges or obstacles that we may or may not remember. The celebratory climatic ending is just a small portion of the larger story. Why does this plot line resonate with us so much? I'd argue because it's not that different from life itself. It's definitely not that different from our walks with the Lord. If you think back on your Christian walk, what percentage of the time is made up of the mountaintop moment that probably is ingrained in your mind? 5%, maybe 10%. So I ask you, how are we spending the remaining 85, 90, 95% of our time, our walk with the Lord? What hardships have we faced or will we face? And maybe the most challenging question is, what if that celebratory ending doesn't come until we reach heaven? Where do we find our hope and strength to endure? And that is what the sermon text tonight speaks into. So before we dive in, 
quick outline of where I want to take us. We're going to quickly talk through the events of the story. And then we're going to dive deeper into the intersection of suffering and hardship in our faith. And then at the end, I really hope to encourage you with three truths that I think we can cling to as believers. If you hear nothing else tonight, I want you to hear this. In our Christian walk, we will face hardship and suffering. But through the person and work of Jesus, we find hope and the strength to suffer well. Here it comes. <laughs> um, this sermon is going to be challenging to a certain extent. It's a challenging text. When Busby gave it to me, I kind of rolled my eyes like, you got to be kidding me. Um, but I do think there's a ton of hope in it. And my prayer is that tonight we can walk away encouraged. So um, let's dive in. Verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. We really jump right in. So at the onset of this text, what do we see? We see the Jews stirring up the crowd. It's probably important to um, just point out that the Jews in this text just aren't kind of Jewish citizens around. They're most likely religious zealots. They're militants, much like Paul was before his conversion. Um, they had most likely followed Paul and Barnabas on their entire missionary trip at this point. If you think back to what I had just said in the um, summary of Busby's sermon last week, we saw them in Antioch stir up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas. In Iconium, they tried to stone them. Um, and then here we are in Lystra. It's not too surprising that they're here as well. To give a little context, though, on kind of how far these um, zealots had traveled to follow Paul and Barnabas, Iconium is about um, 90 miles from Antioch. So if they followed them from Antioch to Iconium, that was a 90-mile journey by foot that these zealots made. And then Lystra was another 20 miles past that. Um, so they were very committed to this cause of stirring up um, the crowds and um, trying to persecute Paul and Barnabas. But why were they so offended by Paul and Barnabas? If you flip back to Acts 13, it very specifically calls out that they were very jealous why were they jealous? I would argue that it's because Israel, is, or Israel thought that they were God's chosen people. That the relationship and covenant they had with the one true God was their thing and no one else's. So when Paul and Barnabas began preaching to the Gentiles, they were jealous about it. And they didn't really know what to do, so they acted out and they stirred up the crowds. And then we see that Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. Isn't it just me or is the crowd pretty fickle? Because one verse earlier they were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. We don't really know how much time had passed between verse 18 and verse 19. I would suppose it was a little bit of time. But yet it's the crowd in the city that ends up stoning them. All it took was a few people saying these guys are false prophets. And then imagine the scene itself, the crowd coming after Paul, Paul being stoned, what his body must have looked like. I would imagine it's horrific. 
And then in verse 20, we see the disciples gather around him, and he rose up and entered the city again. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I don't know about you, but I find this verse incredibly frustrating. Paul was just stoned, he was left for dead. Somehow he's alive, and the verse just completely passes over the miracle of what happened to Paul. And he's just walking on to the next city. Why, are not, why aren't more details given here? First, where did the disciples come from? They had just gotten there. Why hadn't they protected Paul to, to begin with? A second really good question is, did Paul actually die? We don't really know. We don't even know if the disciples prayed for healing. We just know that they gathered around them. A very logical question would be, how on earth could Paul stand up and walk? He had just been stoned. And then the next day, and it says the next day, he walked 35 miles to Derby. I don't know about you. I like to think I'm somewhat healthy. I don't think I could walk 35 miles in one day. I would get very tired. And was he healed when he walked, or was he still covered in blood and bruised? We do not know. I tried to find out because I wanted to preach around this. <laughs> I couldn't find anything. So what's going on? Um, this is actually kind of a literary formula that we see Luke use on a fairly regular basis. Um, Luke wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote Acts. And what he tries to do is um, he shows that a miracle has occurred, in this case, Paul survives, and then he uses the following verses to explain what we're supposed to learn from that miracle. So it's not really about the miracle itself. And that brings us to verses 21 to 23. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. After reading that, um, I'm sure you're like me and you realize why we want to focus on the miracle itself. It's a lot easier uh, these verses are um, incredibly challenging and very radical to think about. First, they call us to costly discipleship. Second, they call us to embrace hardship. And then third, they tell us that through this we should be encouraged. I don't know about you, but I don't really find this, um, costly discipleship and embracing hardship as words that are going to encourage me necessarily. I think a really good question to ask is why did Paul return to Lystra? He had just been run out of town. He's not even supposed to be alive. But he and Barnabas decide that they need to go back. So why do they return? And it's because they're faithful followers of God. And in spite of the hardship, they're committed to their calling. And their calling is to preach to the Gentiles. Had Paul not preached when it was dangerous, 
there's a lot of the New Testament that we, that we would not have. Think about it. Ephesians, written while he was in prison. Philippians, written while he was in prison. Colossians, written while he was in prison. Philemon, written while he was in prison. At the end of Acts, we see Paul appeal to Caesar so that he could go preach to Rome, even though his case likely would have been dropped. In the Christian walk, have you noticed that hardship is the way? And in follow-up to that, I wrote this question in my notes this week. Do you consider comfort and convenience when discerning the Lord's calling for your life? Throughout the New Testament, it's really evident that the life of believers in the early church is not easy, and it is not comfortable, and it is not convenient. And I think these are questions that we need to, to grapple with as believers. And if you're anything like me, I absolutely consider comfort and convenience when I'm discerning the Lord's calling for my life. And you're probably thinking, John, I am not an apostle in the Roman Empire. I live in the United States. We have a religious freedom. And that is 100% true. I can... I'm not going to say absolutely guaranteed because crazy things happen, but pretty much guaranteed that nobody in this room will be stoned. It's not how you're going to die. This church itself, located at the intersection of several nice suburban neighborhoods, I'm guessing that we're all going to go home tonight and we can find enough food in our refrigerators and our pantries that we can go to bed with a full stomach. But following Christ requires sacrifice. Our Lord is holy, he's set apart, and his calling for us is not, in this, is not of this world. In a postmodern Western society anchored in moral relativism, the Christian life ought to be countercultural. So do all Christians really have to experience hardship? Yes. It is clear testimony in the scriptures. If you struggle to believe that statement, here are just a few examples for you. First, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years just so God could teach them to learn to be dependent on him. Look to the Psalms. Over 40% of them are laments. The life of Jesus and his disciples, they're regularly mocked, pursued by the Pharisees in every city they go to. We see Jesus is crucified, and now in Acts we see that the life of the apostles is one of complete sacrifice. In John 15, 18 to 21, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who, because they do not know him who sent me. And then in 2 Timothy 3:12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire a life, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's very clear. So in response to this, I think it's really logical to ask us, why must we suffer? Why must we face hardship? I've been um, trying to read more recently, and I have picked up Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, biography. It's about that thick, and someone who doesn't read, it's reading material for like three years for me. Um, but I'm in it enough now to just really be interested in Bonhoeffer and his work. And um, while I was prepping for this sermon, was flipping through his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in Cost of Discipleship, he says, Jesus Christ must suffer and be rejected. This must is inherent in the promise of God. The scripture must be fulfilled. Suffering and rejection sum up the whole cross of Jesus. To die on the cross means to die despised and rejected of men. Just as Christ is Christ only in the virtue of his suffering and rejection, so the disciple is a disciple only insofar as he shares in his Lord's suffering and rejection and crucifixion. Discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus and therefore submission to the law of Christ, which is the law of the cross. True discipleship is found in our times of hardship and suffering. In Hebrews, it says about Jesus that he learned obedience through what he suffered. So if you think logically through this, if discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus, then I think that we can swap the he's in that Hebrew verse with we. We learn obedience through what we suffer. But in suffering, we have an opportunity to cling tighter to Jesus. And in the process learn more about him, and to love him more dearly. This is heavy stuff. I'm sure I'm not an outlier in the room tonight. I did not wake up this morning just really excited to face hardship and suffering. I don't think anybody ever wakes up excited about that. But in verse 22, it's very clear that Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra to encourage their new belie- the new believers to continue in their faith. And as we progress in Acts over the next coming weeks, we're, we're going to see that the apostles boldly stare down and enter into persecution. But at the same time, we see them continue to rejoice and encourage and strengthen the souls of the disciples. So where do we find the hope? It's at the cross. Just as we must look to Jesus and the cross to understand why we suffer, we must also look to the person and work of Jesus to find our hope and joy. So I want to spend the last few minutes trying to encourage you with just a few truths about Jesus. First, if you're in a period of hardship tonight, a season of suffering, 
Find hope in the knowledge that Jesus has experienced your pain. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was both God and fully man. He was made like us in every respect. He felt our feelings. He was tempted with the same temptations, and he experienced our hardships. And if that truth is hard for you to grasp and you're doubting and struggling to believe it, there's so many examples of this. In the wilderness, we see Jesus faced with temptation from the devil. At Lazarus' tomb, he weeps from grief. He was betrayed and denied by his closest friends. In the garden, we see him cry out in agony from stress, anxiety over the things to come. While he was on trial, his name was slandered. He was mocked. He was misunderstood. He was wrongfully accused, and he was convicted. We saw him beaten and lashed. And then finally on the cross, he was separated from his family and friends alone as he breathed his last breath. There's a saying you probably know. Um, If you know, you know. And a lot of people use it because there's solidarity between people who have, who have the same lived experiences. If you're like me, when you're in a tough spot, you probably like to find comfort and encouragement from somebody who can relate to what, you, what you're going through, someone who knows. What I'm trying to convey to you is that Jesus knows. In every situation, he knows. That's truth number one. Our second truth, that Jesus is both our great shepherd and our great high priest. Not only can he identify with us in our pain and suffering, he promises to meet us there. As a great shepherd, he will watch over us. He seeks us out when we wander astray. He protects us and he tends to our wounds. And as our great high priest, when we cry out to the Lord in suffering, trembling and afraid that the burden's too great, Jesus meets us there and offers us mercy. In, Hebrew, in Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He offers us mercy because he already bore our burden. He has already atoned for our sin and he intercedes on our behalf to God the Father. Our third and final truth. In Jesus, we can find rest and renewal. If Jesus does bear our burdens, which he does, if he has atoned for our sins, which he has, and if he is interceding on our behalf, which he is, then it is here under his wings and in his shadow that we should lay down and rest. Psalm 3.5, one of my favorite verses, says, I lay down and slept and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
1 Peter 5.10, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We are not promised much in our walk with Christ, but we do know that the Lord will not leave us. If we lay down in his shadow, he will protect us, he will strengthen us, and sustain us. And one day, he will restore us. So lean against that cross and kick off your shoes and hang out for a little while. It's a good place to be. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our circumstances? I think it's a really good question. It's really easy to preach about this. It's really hard to remember it and implement this when you find yourself in a place of hardship. But I think that the natural outflow is to pursue something that I have called suffering well. This is actually a concept that several friends brought up unprompted completely to me over the last couple of weeks. What do I mean by suffering well? I mean that as believers, if suffering is unavoidable, then how can we endure suffering in the light of Jesus and the cross? What should our posture be? And to help us figure that out, I want to aim you tonight with two questions. The first is, in your personal walk with the Lord, do you, do you invite Jesus into your suffering, or do you just ask him to take it away? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord for deliverance from suffering. I think we should ask that. But that outcome is not promised to us. In our times of suffering, we are able to find renewed strength, though, intimacy, and peace by inviting God to walk with us in our struggles. It doesn't mean the road's going to be easy, but it does mean we're going to have a faithful companion, and he will carry our burdens, and he will give us strength to continue. The second question I'd ask you is, are you suffering as part of a community of believers? Throughout the New Testament, it's very clear. There's a clear picture painted that the Christian walk is one that is meant to do in a community of believers. Why is that? And it's not just because we each have unique gifts, which we do. It's because we can grow stronger when we lean on each other. I'm not an engineer, but I live in a house. Think about the foundation and the frame of your house. If you were to put all that weight on one piece of wood, it would buckle and break. What's the point of the foundation and the frame? It's to spread that weight across the entire structure. And once that weight is spread, it can stand firm and sturdy. As a community of believers, we can, we can have that same strength. We can share each other's burdens. It's a good plug for Colburn and home groups. This calling is for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be the ones that are in the know with you. So for those of us suffering tonight, there's so much hope. We're not alone in this. The devil might tempt you to believe that you're doing something wrong if you're in pain or suffering. Hear me tonight say that you are not doing anything wrong. Suffering is just the way it goes. 
but Christ has prevailed. Despite being stoned, Paul returns to Lystra. And this time he does not leave until the disciples have been encouraged and elders have been appointed. In other words, he wasn't run out of town a second time. He left on God's terms. If you read several pages further in the cost of discipleship from the quote I just gave earlier, Bonhoeffer says, Jesus invites all who travail and are heavy laden to throw off their own yoke and to take his yoke upon them. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The yoke and burden of Christ are his cross. To go one's way under the sign of the cross is not misery and desperation, but peace and refreshment for the soul. It is the highest joy. Then we do not walk under our self-made laws and burdens, but under the yoke of him who knows us and who walks under the yoke with us. Under his yoke, we are certain of his nearness and communion. It is he, Jesus, whom the disciple finds as he lifts up his cross. And in John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome this world. Christ has already prevailed. Cling to that hope. Let's pray.